Hey listeners, Rob here. I recently realized that we could be doing more to promote other podcasts with similar goals to those that we have on the 80,000 Hours podcast, and so we're occasionally going to cross-post episodes from other shows, uh, especially when they're, when they're just starting out. And our first example comes from the producer of this very podcast, Kieran Harris, who's been working on a pilot for a new show in his spare time. I'm actually about to go overseas on holiday, which unfortunately means uh, I'm recording this intro now before I've actually had a chance to listen to any of what it is that he's going to go ahead and make. My only concern is that he might uh, might produce something so similar to the 80,000 Hours podcast, given how uh, how closely he and I are aligned, uh, that it could make it difficult for people to think of them as, uh, as two truly distinct shows. Uh, maybe we'll be able to distinguish them with different theme music or something. But anyway, uh, I hope you stick around and enjoy whatever thing he comes up with. Here's Kieran Harris. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. So I thought I'd uh, thought I'd open this show with a little bit of um, a little bit of background about how I came to be hosting uh, my own podcast. Okay, so in 2017. I was working at a at a florist, uh, and one night I got uh, I got blackout drunk, and when I came to, I found myself burning down what I thought was my boss's house. And I don't really want to get into um, you know the reasons behind why I I might have wanted to burn down this uh, middle aged florist's house, but uh, you know suffice to say I had my reasons, but. It turned out that, uh, you know, I actually wasn't burning down uh, the house of my, my boss at the time. I was actually burning down the house of 80,000 Hours Director of Research, Rob Wiblin. And, uh, you know, he came out and he caught me. And, uh, you know, I was there with my gasoline and my, uh, you know, my matches. And, and he said that arson of this kind carried a maximum sentence of 10 years behind bars. And he said that if I was willing to work for him uh, for 10 years instead, that he wouldn't press charges. Um, and so that's, that's the story of how 80,000 Hours became my own personal uh, prison, really. Uh, and so then when Rob Wiblin asked me to uh, host my own podcast, you know, I, I was confused. I said, why would you want me to do that? You know, uh, you already know full well that I think the work you do at 80,000 Hours has, you know, really no merit at all. And he said, uh, you know, and I, and I quote, I don't care. Every extra listener is a step closer to me owning my own speedboat. The only thing I've ever cared about. So, you know, that gives you some insight into the, um, into my life over the last six years. And, you know, we don't even have advertising on the show. So, you know, I don't know. Anyway, so... I had to come up with the you know a premise for a show, and I thought, look, since all these people in this uh, you know effective altruism community seem to like criticism so much, I thought maybe I could stake out a uh, kind of a position as a vocal yet respectful critic uh, of their work. Um, and so I've done that with a show that I call the worst ideas in the history of the world. Uh, and I thought there could be no better place to start than the idea of long-termism. Uh, which is very briefly uh, the idea that helping future generations is a key moral priority uh, of our time. 
Okay, so I should probably start by giving you a little bit of background uh, with my personal history with uh, with long termism. Now, I was very close with my with my grandfather, and my grandfather was a kind of amateur scholar and poet. And my grandfather used to say uh, to anyone who would listen, "The only good future person is a dead future person," and um. Yeah, he did. And look, I fully accept that his view um, in in 2023 is seen as very extreme. Uh, it's something that we've moved beyond as a society. At the same time, I do think there's a little bit of truth to it. Not the whole truth, but there is some, there's some partial... Now, look, I'm not... No, before you write in any angry emails, you know, I am not saying... Uh, that the only good future person is a dead future person. You know, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that, you know, he was considered universally wise uh, on virtually every topic. And so it is somewhat strange that he would be right on so many things and then wrong here. But, you know, obviously if that's uh, what the Oxbridge mafia are, are telling us, then obviously that's right. But, and look, I'm not saying, as my wise grandfather did, that future people are stealing our women. However, it is just a fact that the phenomenon of cougars uh, is on the rise. You know, um, older women who seek out younger men. Um, You know, and it is just a fact that if you take, you know, women who are my age today, a lot of the men that they'll eventually uh, seek out if they get into this cougar lifestyle, a lot of those men won't have been born yet, will they? Whereas if um, if we didn't have to deal with future people, our women wouldn't actually have a choice. But to um, I'm not saying that they shouldn't have a choice. Um, you know, I'm as progressive as anyone uh, you're going to meet. I'm just saying that you know there might be some benefits to closing our time borders. That that's all I'm saying. Now I've noticed that when long termists respond to critiques of their work, you know, thoughtful, reasonable critiques that clearly have no ulterior motive, I've noticed that sometimes they say that those critiques are unfair, um, that they don't accurately represent their work. And I truly believe that long-termist ideas are misguided to the point where you simply don't need to misrepresent them. And so I thought for this show, what I'd do is I would play a series of clips uh, of long-termists making arguments for their case in their own words that they endorse Uh, And then I'll respond with my thoughts, you know, with my critiques. And at the end of the episode, you know, you can work out uh, which side had the more reasonable arguments, you know, couldn't be fair, right? Now, I should add a disclaimer that all of these clips are from the 80,000 Hours podcast. I need to stress that that doesn't mean that I'm implying that the 80,000 Hours podcast is a quality show, uh, because obviously it isn't. It's just that... By working at 80,000 Hours, I have access to the archives. And so I don't need to email anyone for permission to use these clips. It saves me a few minutes. That's the only reason I would ever uh, do anything that could be seen as promoting this show. Okay, so arguably the most prominent long-termist in the world is Will McCaskill. Uh, he wrote the book, What We Owe the Future, which is all about long-termism. So it makes sense to start with, with him. I'm now going to play two short clips from episode number 136 of the 80,000 Hours podcast. In the first one, 
uh, Will McCaskill outlines the basic case for long-termism and explains why the future will be really big. Okay, here we go. I think the core argument is very simple. It's that future people matter morally. It's that there could be enormous numbers of future people. And then finally, that we can make a difference to the world they inhabit. So we really can make a difference to all of those lives that may be lived. Homo sapiens have been around for about 300,000 years. If we live as long as a typical mammal species, we will survive for hundreds of thousands of years. If we last until the Earth is no longer habitable, we will last for hundreds of millions of years. Uh, If one day we take to the stars and have a civilization that is interstellar, then we could survive for hundreds of trillions of years. Even on the kind of low estimates, such as, you know, us living as long as a typical mammal species, the future is truly vast. So on that low estimate, there is about a thousand people in the future for every person alive today. When we look at those, you know, longer timescales that civilization could last for, there are millions, billions, or even trillions of people to come for every person alive today. Okay, and here's the, um, here's the second clip where Will McCaskill um, makes the case for why future people matter morally. Imagine you're hiking on a trail, you drop some glass, and suppose you know that in 100 years' time, someone will cut themselves on that glass. Is it any reason at all <laughs> for you know, not taking the time to clean up after yourself that the person who will be harmed lives in 100 years' time? Or hasn't been born yet. Or hasn't, maybe hasn't even been born. And it seems like the answer is no. Or if you could prevent a genocide in you know, 1,000 years versus 10,000 years versus 100,000 years, and it will kill 100,000 people, does it make any difference when those lives will be lived? Again, it just seems like intuitively not. Harm is harm wherever it occurs. And in that way, distance in time is quite like distance in space. The fact that someone will suffer is bad in and of itself, even if they live on the other side of the world. The fact that someone will suffer is bad in and of itself, even if they will live 10,000 years from now. So I think when we reflect on thought experiments like this, we see that, yeah, we want to give a lot of moral weight to future people. So I thought we'd go through the points in Will McCaskill's simple three-point case for long-termism one by one. I agree with number two, that the future could be very big and very long. And I agree with number three, that we can reasonably hope to influence whether future people exist uh, and how good or bad uh, their lives are. But I have serious reservations with number one, um, which is where we'll start with my list, five strong reasons for why future people might not matter morally. Okay, so I've written these down on a piece of paper. I'm going to read the headlines and then I'll give you some color. Here we go. Reason number one for why future people might not matter morally. They won't get our film and TV references. Okay, so let's imagine that you're hanging out with a, uh, with a future friend and something surprising happens and you feel you're in the mood to be a little bit whimsical um, and nostalgic and you decide you want to reference The Simpsons. Okay, so you'll say to your future friend, you'll say, I carumba, you know? And, uh, and the future friend will just stare at you blankly. Now, McCaskill wants to call that future person staring blankly. He wants to call them uh, as morally valuable as you or I, who upon hearing I caramba, at least when delivered correctly, we'd break into hysterics, wouldn't we? Number two on reasons why future people might not matter morally, they'll be able to travel through time and they'll never choose to come to the 2020s. 
you know, they'll go to the building of the pyramids and they'll visit ancient Greece, but they'll never come to the opening of a new M&M's world, will they? Okay, on to the next one. All right, I'm sure you've all heard the common adage directed at long-termists. If you love future people so much, why don't you marry them? And if you've ever said this to a long-termist, you know, I'm sure you've probably noticed a certain glint in their eye, you know, almost as if, almost as if they're taking it as a personal challenge. Now, I don't want to call this a fetish. You know, I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, I'm not an expert. I'm not. I'm not an expert, so you'd have to ask one. But, you know, certainly something odd is going on uh, in the case of these uh, cross-temporal sexual preferences. You know, something is. Okay, so my third idea for why future people might not matter morally is... By inevitably marrying normal people, future people will destroy the sanctity of marriage. Look, if future people are allowed to marry present people, what's next? Uh, A toaster from the past marrying an, uh, an iguana from an alternate reality? It'll never end. Okay, back to the list. Reason number four for why future people might not matter morally. They'll know the exact time and matter of your death. Which is the perfect combination of smugness and creepiness, isn't it? I mean, you're sitting there, eating a ham sandwich, and they're thinking, that's right, go ahead and contribute to the heart attack that'll kill you on November 4th, 2045, when you're trying on novelty hats in a hat store. I can't wait. Which leads me perfectly into, you know, our final counterpoint to the thesis of long-termism. Future people are walking spoiler alerts. Now, if there's one thing I can't stand, it's people spoiling the endings of movies, uh, or sports results, or the exact time and manner of your death. But it doesn't end there with future people, does it? No. I mean, imagine, imagine being with, you know, who you thought was a future friend, and, you know, you, you're a bit vulnerable with them, and you, and you share one of your hopes of the future, and you say, oh... I really hope I make it to the time when they can make a toothpaste that tastes exactly the same as chocolate ice cream. And the future person says, Oh, I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. And the amount of heartbreak you feel in that moment for them having spoiled this moment for you. It's this combination. It's this heartbreaking combination of joy at the fact that you're going to get to have this amazing thing and this absolute despair that you're not going to be able to experience the surprise of it. You know, you'll be sitting there years later in your floating mansion, uh, watching your holographic TV, and you'll ask NewsGPT the headlines. And NewsGPT will say, Headline number one, Colgate makes a special announcement. And your head will be buried into your pillow as the tears stream down your face and the ambivalence between the best moment of your life being ruined by the worst friend you could ever have. So there you have it. Five strong reasons for why Will McCaskill's thesis doesn't go through. Uh, I'm not saying these are the absolute strongest arguments against long-termism. I'm just saying they're the strongest we've come up with so far. Okay, for the next section, let's move on to this idea 
that we can reasonably hope to influence uh, whether future people exist and how good or bad uh, their lives will be. Now, the most prominent idea that long-termists have have come up with uh, for increasing the welfare of future people is to reduce what they call existential risk. And again, to be completely fair to these people, I'm going to play a clip of Toby Ord, who is the author of the book The Precipice, uh, from episode number 72 of the 80,000 Hours podcast, where he introduces why long-termists care about this stuff. Okay, here it is. The book is called The Precipice, Existential Risk and the Future of Humanity. And it's about how humanity has been around for 2,000 centuries so far and how long and uh, great our future might be and how soaring our potential is, but how all of this is at risk. There have been natural risks of human extinction, things like asteroids that, that could potentially wipe us out as they have many other species. And there's been this background rate of such risks. But with humanity's increasing power over time, our rise of technological power, we reach this stage where we may have the power to destroy ourselves, leading to the destruction not only of the present, but of the entire future and everything that we could hope to achieve. And this is something where, you know, I now think that the risk is high enough that this century it's about one in six. And I think that, yeah, that the risk is either going to go higher or or that we fail out of this time period, or that we get our act together and we lower these risks. Now, if you share Toby Ord's views, perhaps you would like to dedicate your career to reducing existential risks. Um, But what if instead um, you share the views of my wise grandfather, uh, you know, about the only good future person being a, a dead future person? You know, what should you do then with your career? And I think it's common sense to roughly take the inverse of Toby Ord's approach. Uh, and to, uh, as subtly as possible, increase existential risks. And I say as subtly as possible because if you were too obvious about this, you'd probably be committing crimes and someone might stop you. Uh, So you've got to be a bit clever about it. Now, I want to remind you that uh, I don't agree with my grandfather personally, okay? But I have jotted down a few ideas over the years uh, about subtly and creatively increasing existential risks uh, in my notebook, so I thought I'd share a few with you with you now. Toby Ord says that the risk of an existential disaster this century is uh, one in six. That's a nice place to start. Um, but there's no doubt we could get that higher if we showed uh, a little ambition. And my first idea for increasing existential risk surrounds uh, great power wars. So in keeping with the theme of being fair, uh, I thought I'd play you uh, a clip with uh, Chris Blattman from episode number 128 uh, of the 80,000 Hours podcast. I think, if anything, there's a common set of very difficult to resolve routes to great power wars, which is that in a city, we can imagine a, a superstructure, a criminal superstructure organizing the gangs and being that third-party guarantor of mm. peace and security and commitment and punishing unchecked leaders and, and solving the five problems. And at a city or even a national level, states perform those functions pretty well. And we've proven pretty good at constructing those institutions. And And as an individual, if I decided I wanted to really make a contribution to those, I could probably make a difference on the margin. Mm. On the other hand... 
it's very hard for anybody, even the U.S. president, to think, how could we change the fundamental structure of the U.N. Security Council? And so so there's a, a scale of human institutions where we don't yet have the solutions, and they're so big and slow and subject to lots of forces and competing actors that they're hard to manipulate. So it's so there's this fundamental problem of anarchy, meaning there's nobody above to sort of settle these disputes, and there's a difficulty of, of tackling that. We still have tools, but we have to be willing to work on these low-return margins. Okay, so my first idea for subtly and creatively increasing existential risks is called the World Series of World Wars. Okay, so this is playing off what society did with the World Series of Poker, uh, which was previously unwatchable on TV, uh, and turning World Wars into a spectacle on ESPN. All right? So the idea here would be that you broadcast it like an exciting international event, and you have uh, exciting opening ceremonies, you have, you know, exciting graphics and stats and graphs. Uh, you have, you know, trophy ceremonies for the winners. You know, just maximize the incentives for countries to, to start World Wars. And like the World Series of Poker, the World Series of World Wars could have a funny co-commentator who makes jokes about his ex-wives. I don't know, he could say something like... Um, why that country folded slower than my wife on laundry day. It's actually pretty good, isn't it? That was, uh, that was just improvised, but um, it's perfect joke structure, isn't it? You know, I hadn't actually planned to get any laughs with this show. You know, these are obviously very, uh, very serious topics. But, um, you know, I'm definitely not a comedian. But, you know, there was this one time when I was at a, at a restaurant and I was with my friends and uh, about halfway through the meal... This lady came up to me and she said, excuse me, are you Brett from Flight of the Concords, only shorter and fatter? And I thought, well, that's all right, isn't it? You know, because obviously she must have heard me joking around with my friends and mistaken my comedy stylings for that of one of New Zealand's most talented musical funny men. Okay, my second idea relates to nuclear weapons. Uh, so I'm going to play a clip from... Uh, episode 43 of the 80,000 Hours podcast with Daniel Ellsberg. Here we go. Our policy has actually been the threat of an insane action, an action that essentially we now know for the last 35 years has involved killing nearly everyone on earth by the smoke from the burning cities that are planned to be hit in our war plans. And that smoke we now know on the nuclear winter calculations would be lofted into the stratosphere, would spread around the world globally. I'm talking now about a war between the U.S. and Russia where thousands of weapons would be involved. And a few hundred of those weapons on cities, which are targeted, uh, would be enough to cause smoke that would reduce the sunlight reaching the Earth's surface by about 70%, killing all the harvests worldwide and for a period as long as a decade. But that wouldn't be necessary Killing all the harvests for about a year, or even less, uh, would, would exhaust our food supplies, which globally are about 60 days, and nearly everyone would starve to death, except for a small fraction, perhaps 1%, a little more or less, of humans would survive. In Australia, 
or New Zealand, southern hemisphere is somewhat less affected. Eating fish and mollusks. And that could be a sizable number of people. 1% is 70 million people, but 99% gone. And virtually all the larger animals, other than humans, they're not as adaptable as we are. And um, they can't move thousands of miles and wear clothes like fires, have houses. They would go extinct altogether, as they did when an asteroid hit the Earth 67 or 65 million years ago. and created a very similar effect, blotting out sunlight by the dust that was sent up. Even the word evil seems uh, just overwhelmed by what we're talking about, which is the destruction of most large life and most humans on Earth, something that was simply not possible 100 years ago. Okay, my second idea for subtly and creatively increasing existential risks is called Nuclear Armageddon Park. Okay. And this was inspired in part by a wonderful documentary I saw on HBO called Class Action Park, which was about a place in New Jersey uh, in the 80s that was known as the most dangerous theme park uh, in the world. You know, the rides were genuinely dangerous there. And there were countless injuries uh, and even a few deaths uh, as a result um, of the park. And so I thought, you know, what if we built something similar, you know, only with a theme of nuclear weapons? And so I'm calling it Nuclear Armageddon Park. Now, come on, don't say no until, you know, until you've heard me out. You know, because we've already had many uh, what are called nuclear near misses, you know, uh, throughout history so far since the development of nuclear weapons. Uh, And my grandfather always used to say that near misses is just another term for failure. Um, So, you know, I do think we can do better here. Okay, so what kind of rides might we have in nuclear Armageddon Park? Okay, so I just have some early rough thoughts. I want to make it clear. These are not like final or anything. These are just like early drafts, but I think they're promising. Okay, so what if we had a water slide uh where people people slid down it was kind of this long long tube classic water slide design but in the pool at the bottom there you have a nuclear submarine okay now the key to this is that you have you have a real active crew uh, of military folks working in the nuclear sub but they don't know where they are you know you haven't told them that they're in a theme park and so every time that one of the park goers crashes in to the side of the sub, you know, they might think they're under attack. This could work with, you know, military from the US or Russia or China. Maybe even have like officers from all three countries in different slides, you know, throughout the park. But anyway, the idea would be that eventually one of them would make the decision that they're under attack and they might retaliate using their nukes, you know? Uh, It's not going to happen every time, but you're just ramping up the percentages there, aren't you? Okay, another idea. Um, you've probably seen pictures of people sort of pretending to ride nuclear weapons, right? Um, and so I thought, what if you allow people to do that for real in nuclear Armageddon Park, you know, out of like mini planes throughout the park there, you know, like, you know, you can reenact that scene from the end of Doctor Strangelove where something like that happens. And apologies if you haven't seen that yet, and I've been a real future person by spoiling that for you. Uh, and the last idea I had um, was just to directly rebuild the exact rides from 
uh, from Action Park, uh, except that you give a 50% discount off to any parkgoer who happens to work directly with nuclear weapons in their regular career, you know, with the thinking that some percentage of those parkgoers will at some point develop brain damage as a result of the rides. And no, look, I know, no, look, I'm, I know this is not all rainbows and unicorns, right? You know, I'm not, you know, I don't think this would be easy. You know, I don't think I'm not a terrible person. I just think that, look, you know, sometimes doing what's right for the world isn't easy. And anyway, we don't have to do all of these. You know, I'm just starting the conversation. Okay, my next one definitely needs uh, a bit of background info. So for years, 80,000 Hours has been very whiny uh, about the threat of future pandemics. Uh, And one subsection of their concern uh, relates to what's called gain-of-function research. Uh, So to kind of explain that, I'm going to play a clip from episode 112 of the 80,000 Hours podcast with Carl Schulman. Okay, so a completely different style of program other than these these bioweapons is scientific research, biomedical research, in which scientists try to make new viruses that have additional or different capabilities than, than what wilder viruses do. I guess that's so, so-called gain-of-function research. It sounds like even labs that are reasonably well run still have a rate of leaking samples, leaking leaking viruses out of them. That is something on the order of, I guess you mentioned one in 500 lab years earlier. I guess maybe we could say if things have gotten a bit better now, maybe it's, you know, more like one in a thousand, one in 2000 lab years. But it still suggests that if these leaks are happening at all at, at that kind of rate, then it might not be so wise to be creating and storing viruses that might be capable of causing a global pandemic in any labs at all, because perhaps we just haven't yet figured out how to reach the standard of safety that would be required to ensure that there's no way that, that they can escape into the wild and, and, and cause huge amounts of damage. Yeah, so the, the safety still seems poor, and it's not something that has gone away in the last decade or two. Like there have been a number of mishaps just in, in recent years. For example, those multiple releases of uh, infections of SARS-1 after it had been extirpated in the wild. If we have an infection rate of, you know, one in 100 per worker year or one in 500 per laboratory year, and given an infection of like a, a new pandemic thing, and a lot of these leaks, like some, yeah, someone else was infected, usually not many because they don't have high enough or not. So yeah, you might you might say like on the order of one in a thousand per year of work with this kind of thing for an escape. And then there's only a handful of effective labs doing this kind of thing. So you know you wouldn't you wouldn't have expected any catastrophic releases to have happened yet reliably. But also if you if you scale this up and had hundreds of labs doing pandemic pathogen gain of function kind of work where they were actually making things that would themselves be ready to cause a pandemic directly. Yeah, I mean, that cumulative threat could get pretty high. Okay, so my third idea for subtly and creatively uh, increasing existential risks uh, involves making a a TV show. Um, Did you ever see the old show uh, The Dating Game? So the format for this one is that there was a there was a bachelorette who would question three bachelors uh, who she couldn't see, who were behind a wall. Um, and at the end of the show, she would pick one of them 
you know, to accompany her on a date, you know, and the show would pay for all their expenses. Uh, so I had an idea for a new uh, dating show called The Dating Game. So this is, this is not exactly the same format uh, as The Dating Game. So I'll, I'll tell you, okay, I'll, I'll explain how this one works. Okay, so a normal bachelorette uh, or bachelor, you know, they come on the show um, and like The Dating Game, uh, there's three people behind the wall that they could potentially date. Uh, but one of those people is working on dangerous uh, gain-of-function research. And if that scientist doesn't get picked to go on the, on the date at the end, uh, they have to release their dangerous pathogens into the wild. So, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm certainly not claiming that every show would lead to, you know, something as bad or worse as COVID. You know, I'm just saying it would give us, you know, give us kind of a fighting chance. Okay, so those are the three ideas I thought I'd, I'd share today. You know, I don't want to overwhelm you, um, but, you know, there are a few other ideas in my notebook. So, um, you know, do, do reach out if you'd like to hear about more of those. Maybe we could do them in some future shows. Now, I wanted to wrap this episode up by making something very clear. This whole show is about the ideas that surround long-termism uh, and effective altruism. It's not about the people in the effective altruism and long-termism communities. You know, just because you disagree very strongly with specific ideas, that doesn't mean that the people who do believe those ideas are anything other than intelligent, warm, lovely people worthy of immense respect. I should, however, flag one thing uh, in the interest of transparency. I have noticed in my years around these communities um, that most of its adherents uh, are vegetarians or vegans. Um, I think almost all of them love dogs, and I know many of them to be avid painters. Um, And I personally don't believe in guilt by association uh, at all, but I I think it would be remiss of me not to mention that, as far as I know, the only historical figure to have loved dogs, loved painting, and to have refused to eat animals at all, uh, was the Fuhrer himself, Adolf Hitler. So, um, yeah, look, look, I, I really genuinely don't want to influence your, you know, your thoughts one way or another towards determining whether these are communities that you'd like to be associated with. Uh, I just feel like it's important to be completely honest about this kind of thing. All right, good night, everybody. Again, don't know where, don't know when, but I know we'll meet again some sunny day. Keep smiling through, just like you. If you had strong opinions about that, one way or another please email us at podcast at 80,000hours.org to help us figure out whether more of that ought to exist or not. We'll be back with a regular interview soon.